I'm Thorne Dreyer. This is RAG Radio, and uh, we're really happy to be with you again, all of you, wherever you're listening. Uh, we are um, originally broadcast every Fridays at 2, p- at 2 p.m., from 2 to 3 p.m., on uh, Co-op Radio in Austin, Texas, and Co-op 91.7 FM, uh, KOOP.org, is an all-volunteer, solar-powered, collectively run community radio station. And it's a very, very, it's a good place. Uh, And uh, we are also rebroadcast by several other stations around the country, and our podcasts are posted in a number of places, and and, uh, so we have have a pretty wide reach. Uh, I'm my regular crew is here. Tracy, Sch- or not everybody. Roger Baker's <laughs> not here. He's not feeling well. Tracy Schultz, my yeah. uh, my cohort <laughs> and uh, engineer. How are you, Tracy? Uh, doing all right. Doing all right. Keeping busy. It's you, a little. Uh, it's a. It's a little uh, miserable outside right now, but it's uh, getting by. I'm telling you though. I mean, we say it's miserable, and people who are listening in you know other parts of the country may think, oh man. You know, it's in the 40s at this point. It's been, we had a couple of days where it didn't get above freezing, but for us, it's miserable. Uh, we've had two days we had snow and then another day with sleet. Uh, and that's unusual for Austin, Texas. <laughs> so, uh, but we're surviving just fine. So anyway, Susie Sheeler is here. She's, Susie is our, is our new RAG Radio associate. Uh, she's graduated from RAG Radio Apprentice. Susie, how are you? I'm doing well, and I'm happy to have finally graduated. Yeah, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> Got my diploma at the Framers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought you, you were just going to still kind of go for a GED or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I, this is going to be fun. I'm glad to have everybody here. And my guest, who's an old, who's I've been working with... Uh, for a long time, in various capacities, Harry Targ um, has written, uh, we've published a lot of his essays on the RAG blog. He's been our guest once previously on RAG Radio. Uh, Harry, you there? I'm here. <laughs> I'm not sympathetic with your weather plight. We've See, been worse. that's what I thought. <laughs> so, but we're, we're, we're uh, it's all relative to what you're used to. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, no sympathy for that. <laughs> okay, Harry Targ, uh, we're gonna. This is this should be a very interesting discussion. Um, you know, and it was hard to kind of figure out a topic to pull it all together. But what I said was organizing around uh, MLK's three evils: poverty, racism, and militarism. Uh, Harry is a professor of political science at Purdue University. He is the coordinator of Purdue's Committee on Peace Studies. Uh, he's published numerous books and articles, uh, and uh, uh, he is the national co-chair of the Committees on, of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism, CCDS. Uh, he blogs at the Diary of a Heartland Radical and participates in labor and peace and justice movements in Indiana. And uh, like I said, he's been, has been published uh, quite a bit on the RAG blog. Uh, and I don't remember when, I think it was 2014 maybe when we were... When you were last on the show? I'm not uh, sure. I think more recently than was that. Was it more recently but, than that? Know. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, because I discovered... Yes, yes. It was just about two years ago, I think. Uh, okay. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, I, 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 you sent me a number of things you've written recently, and I'm also on your list, so I always get a lot of cool stuff. Um, one of the things that set all of this off... you. I think what we're going to do is we're going to talk about new social movements and the need to organize around social and economic justice at home and against war overseas. 
And one of the things that, that you just wrote and that kind of inspired me to get in touch with you and to do this uh, is the, the Senator Bernie Sanders and the Reverend William Barber uh, actually were having a public conversation. I think it was at Duke University. Yeah. Is that right? But it was originally scheduled for tonight, but they've just postponed it. Oh, they have. They postponed it because, of the, because uh, Sanders may have to be in the Senate tonight. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> so, uh, but it's going to be, it's, it's rescheduled soon, and that will be st- video streamed live. So I think that would be something that would be well worth uh, worth uh, watching. And it, it, the convergence of Sanders and Barber and their movements, uh, Sanders is our revolution, and then the new, new Poor People's Campaign, which grew out of um, Moral Mondays. Uh, so... It's, it sort of does what we were just talking about. It pulls together these various strains that I think we need to talk about in terms of poverty, racism, and militarism. Um, and we'll also talk about uh, some of the things that, that Harry's been writing about. Uh, the U.S. is declining empire, and that fact, a declining empire with nuclear weapons in its hands, <laughs> not good. Uh, and the military-industrial complex and ideas about mobilizing around economic conversion if we do cut military spending at some point. So, Harry, <laughs> did, I, did I cover everything? Yes, okay. you've, uh, you've summarized my hour of talk. So, well, this has been fun. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Tracy, can we just go to music? No. Uh, <laughs> tell me about your feelings about this sort of convergence and why you think it's important of Sanders and Barber and, and their movements, and, and do you see that as their movements actually ended, ending up converging or working together? Okay, I, w- I was really excited to see the optics of, uh, of Bernie Sanders and Reverend Barber uh, speaking together. Um, I saw Reverend Barber in Milwaukee, where I spent some time <clears throat> in August, and Reverend Barber has been traveling around the country to... Um, uh, to advocate for the new poor people's campaign, drawing upon the message of Dr. King at Riverside Church and the poor people's campaign that he was uh, <clears throat> organizing at the time of his death. And what and we in Indiana had created an Indiana Moral Mondays movement in the spirit of of Reverend Barber, and our focus was largely state based and local, and we assiduously avoided uh, militarism and international uh, relations, and I was a little uncomfortable about that. Um, Secondly, uh, my experience in Milwaukee being on panels and talking with folks uh, suggested that there was, as one person referred to it, a silo problem. Milwaukee is a medium-sized city with an uh, enormous array of social, political, and economic problems, uh, one of the most segregated cities in the country. And there are a variety of groups uh, working on issues in and around um, uh, gentrification and grotesque inequality and joblessness and police uh, police violence. And I discovered that there's all these different groups operating semi-independently of each other, even though if one got sat down with several of these different groups, one would see that there was a clear overlap in uh, their agendas. 
and their vision of a better future. And I was on a panel with a woman from the African-American community who talked about the silo problem, which uh, is shorthand for this kind of almost excessive diversification of, uh, of campaigns. And then I came back to my little town in West Lafayette, Indiana, and we have the same phenomena here, even though the number of activists is, is less. Now, Reverend Barber launched the Moral Mondays campaign. Really, it started about a decade ago, uh, but it became very visible around the state and the nation around 2010 uh, after uh, North Carolina government went red, the governor's governorship and the legislative branches, and they began to impose a really reactionary agenda from um, voter suppression to cutting back on public services. And Reverend Barber argued that there was a need for all the different groups to come together, work together, even though they maintained an interest in their own particular issues. And he called it fusion politics the idea that our strength comes from our unity, and since we share common values anyway, we need to work together. So the Moral Mondays movement spread to several states. As I say, we tried it in Indiana. I don't know if it got to Texas, but I know it got to, uh, to Arizona. Uh, but it was primarily domestic and local, okay? And then we have the 2016 campaign and the emergence of the Sanders candidacy, uh, the public use of the word socialism, uh, the enthusiasm of many young people for Bernie Sanders, the tripling of membership in groups like the Democratic Socialist of America. Yeah, and, we have we have we have 750 members here. Oh, okay. In Austin. So, <laughs> extraordinary uh, growth and enthusiasm, right? Virtually all around the country, and uh, so to see these iconic figures, each representing uh, a kind of movement that overlaps, having dialogue with with each other, I thought was really interesting and and almost inspiring. And I wrote this blog essay last week that argued that if you oversimplify, the Sanders campaign is built upon a kind of material analysis, right? A political economy, if you will, influenced by the Marxist tradition, influenced by populism, uh, influenced by uh, American socialism like uh, Eugene Debs and his followers. And... The Barber campaign is influenced by an ethical, moral agenda. And his members, the, the original Moral Mondays, for the, more often than not, came out of spiritual communities. And I began to think that while each of these movements starts from a different place in terms of analysis, they end up with a common vision of human possibility and both resistance to Trumpism and moving ahead. And so I'm encouraged to see this kind of dialogue. And from my point of view, we have to figure out a way to overcome the silo problem that I think is replicated, at least in places where I've been. I don't know if there's as much of a silo problem in Austin, 
but I think it's a national phenomenon, and it exists in, in various locations. So it may be the merger of, uh, of uh, our uh, groups like Our Revolution and um, the New Pe- Poor People's Campaign will generate that kind of fusion politics that we need to develop real power to bring about significant change. I posted at the bottom of my blog a link to a conversation that Bernie Sanders had with Reverend Barber. I think Sanders was interviewing Barber uh, last February, February 2017, that I found online. And then I posted a short uh, sort of rabble-rousing speech that was given last week by Nina Turner, who's the president of our revolution. And I thought uh, her political economy analysis or addressing of the fundamental issues of economic justice and the way in which she linked that with the imagery and style of the African-American church represented to me a kind of fusion of these two different but overlapping traditions. So I'm hoping that we could pull together um, and, uh, you know, sort of elements from these two traditions and begin to overcome the silo silo problem. I think it's true that since last January, there's been an enormous uptick in organizing activity, uh, enthusiasm of young people, particularly uh, in our own community. We're having a big event tomorrow uh, organized by um, um, the Indivisible uh, group, bringing, inviting people from different organizations to have tables and distribute their literature, and then we're going to have panel discussions where each group will have a spokesperson. And um, this was a year after that was done in our community, and uh, a year after there was a really large mobilization um, uh, post-inauguration day, the same time that the, of the massive mobilization in Washington, D.C., so there's just all this enthusiasm, and I think there's a real need to channel it and move it uh, in a common direction. Okay, a couple. by the way, everybody, you're listening to a political scientist and author and organizer and academic, <laughs> Harry Targ. Uh, and uh, a, couple, a couple of things I just want to mention from stuff you said. One, I'll, I'll say something about Austin and what's happening here, but... Uh, uh, Nina Turner, I, I met her, heard her speak at uh, Jim Hightower's office not too long ago, and it was in our revolution gathering, and she is so impressive. Uh, I mean, she's a stem winder. She gives, I mean, she gives a terrific speech, and she's very, she's going to do a show with us. We just have got, don't have a date oh, set wow. for it yet, so uh-huh. uh, that's going to be very cool. Uh, incidentally, I also, um, I had a show not too long ago with Lee Carter. Uh, Lee Carter was the DSA candidate who uh, won a seat in the Virginia uh, House of Delegates, beating the Republican whip, highly financed uh, and he's also very impressive, incidentally. Austin has, I think, a lot of overlapping. All these groups that you're talking about are very active in Austin. The Democratic Socialists have tended to be the clearinghouse. Okay. And, you know, there's these big, big meetings, and people come and give reports on what they're doing. There's a big sanctuary movement here. Um, and it's been, 
that's I think has happened to some extent. Susie, do you think that's happening in Austin? Do you feel that? Absolutely, absolutely. I think DSA is is really really making a move here in Austin. Yeah. They've gotten quite yeah. big. Okay, that's yeah. It 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 and it it has served in that purpose. So there's lots of activity. Um, the other thing that that struck me, and then I'll turn it back to you, is that at the beginning when you know I this was a time I think when. Uh, Dinosaurs still walked the earth. Uh, I was in an organization called SDS and uh, was an organizer in Austin and Houston and also involved nationally. And um, one of the things that we would tell people if they said, what's SDS about? You know, what is it? What do you what's your perspective that's different from, you know, what are you bringing? And I always said, well, I think in SDS, we believe that all the all the issues are interrelated and interconnected. And, uh, and that we think the problem is systemic. <laughs> and that was an early kind of, I mean, SDS wasn't Marxist, but I think that's, that's, that just made me think of what's happening now for some reason and, and that we have to get more interconnected. Uh, we had, SDS was this incredible national umbrella organization. Uh, and so then there hasn't been such a thing mm-hmm. uh, for a while. I mean, maybe the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has been as much a, you know, as anything. So I, you know, I, I I feel hopeful, but it's hard to feel hopeful for very long right now in this, in this, with this administration and with all of the really, really negative things that, that are happening right. nationally. The other thing I, I probably didn't emphasize enough is the paucity of participation of the peace movement in all of this. And yes. at least I felt that even Bernie Sanders' campaign didn't highlight enough uh, military spending. And it seems to me that is very logical, given his program and vision, to see military spending as a major impediment to its achievement. And uh, I think we, I think the peace movement has to get more involved and interconnected with this. And one of the things that excited me about uh, Barber's articulation of the new poor people's campaign and the three evils is that militarism becomes one of them. And when we started our Moral Mondays campaign in Indiana, you know, the few of us that had this broader vision were really reticent to raise foreign policy issues because we thought they were out of place. And so that's another way in which this sort of interconnectivity is so so terribly important. Some of the things that happened in Madison, I think, also uh, had some some parallels. Um, we need to take a break. Uh, we're talking with Harry Torg. I'm Thorne Dreyer, and this is Rag Radio. Uh, we'll be right back. I've traveled around this country from shore to shining shore. It really made me wonder The things I heard and saw I saw the weary farmer A plowing sod and loam I heard the auction hammer Just a-knocking down his home But the banks are made of marble With a guard at every door And the bolts are stuffed with silver 
that the farmer sweated for. I've seen the seamen standing idly by the shore, and I heard their bosses saying, "Got no work for you no more." But the banks are made of marble, with a guard at every door, and the vaults are stuffed with silver that the seamen sweated for. I'm Thorn Dry. This is Rag Radio. My guest is uh, political scientist Harry Torg, and uh, Harry. The banks I'd are rather, still made of marble. Uh, I'd rather listen to Pete than hear me talk. <laughs> well, you'd probably rather hear me talk either. <laughs> but you wrote about, uh, you. this was a, something that you had posted earlier, I think, maybe. That, that it, maybe that sometimes we have to sing and cry and hit the streets. Right, right. And I think we may have published that on the rag blog, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you said, I'm not a red diver baby. I didn't read Marx until the 1970s. I don't know when I decided I was a Marxist. I didn't start teaching Marx in political economy until the late 1970s. But I came up, became a small R red when I first heard the folk group The Weavers right. in the 1950s. Then on to Pete Seeger. Alone, not with the Weavers. Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, and later Arlo Guthrie, Phil Oaks, and even Chris Christopherson and Bruce Springsteen. The role of our music has always been so, so important. I think so. And I would add to that list. In recent years, I've had the opportunity to, uh, I'm always a latecomer, to study Paul Robeson and uh, his contribution to both music and politics and uh, liberatory political vision is just ex- was just extraordinary. And we had occasion to host here, uh, I think last year, Harry Belafonte, who paid homage to Robeson, his major mentor. And Harry Belafonte is a survivor of that tradition of trying to bring culture to politics and politics to culture. Um, I think the connections are just terribly important. And if you draw the idea of, of, of uh, culture more broadly, the, uh, the beginnings of interaction of athletes on the Korean Peninsula is another example of uh, the kind of connections that maybe could overcome uh, increasingly authoritarian political regimes and super-exploitative economic Regime. So culture broadly defined in my judgment is terribly important. Um, I, it, speaking, when you, now that you mentioned the international, I mean, the, decline, the issue of the decline of empire, it, was very, it, it seems very significant at this point. And obviously we're an empire, an empire very significantly in decline, and we don't know how to, we don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, we don't know how to downsize. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you think that's affecting what's happening in the world. Right. I was uh, very impressed by a book that I just read a few re- weeks ago by Alfred McCoy, University of Wisconsin history professor, who years and years ago uh, wrote a book on the Iron Triangle, the flow of drugs from Southeast Asia to the West. And uh, his new book, and the name of it um, something like the shaping of American decline, uh, develops the argument and has comparative data 
on uh, the U.S. economy compared with the Chinese economy. And uh, the uh, sort of penetration of the Chinese economy geopolitically into, onto the European continent as well as Africa and Latin America, and the diminution of U.S. economic capabilities. Now, it's not that he's suggesting or that I would suggest that um, the United States is becoming, to use the metaphor, a paper tiger and the uh, economy is in precipitous decline, but we're perhaps moving in the direction of a multipolar world. And it's clear by uh, the recent statements of the Chinese leadership and their economic penetration, their construction of uh, rapid uh, rail networks from Europe to the Chinese mainland, that China is expanding as an influential economic power in the world. McCoy also uh, describes some transformation in American uh, military capabilities and research. It's really scary. Uh, cyberspace, um, efforts to colonize space, and he uses metaphors of prior empires that tried to control territory and territory and strategic location, uh, locations, and now the interest in uh, sort of capturing space to maintain U.S. military hegemony. Of course, we also have the dramatic increase in the use of drone warfare, and other people like Nick Terse and earlier on Chalmers Johnson estimated that we have about a thousand U.S. military installations in about 130 countries around the world. We've got uh, about eight years ago, AFRICOM was established, so there's a major uh, U.S. military presence established on the African continent. There's also the trend towards privatization of uh, military activities around the world. And in space. <laughs> and in space. And the idea is that, quote, as long as there's not, quote, boots on the ground, uh, politicians will not have to deal with the problems that were raised by the Vietnam War. And so, so McCoy is kind of implying, I think perhaps directly saying, that here you have a situation of, in traditional international relations terms, we're shifting from now a unipolar international system where the U.S. was, quote, the last remaining superpower after the collapse of the Soviet Union to a multipolar system. And we've got histories of empires in decline. And I have a colleague who's written about that, and I need to read, uh, read some of his work to see how empires were able to adapt or not to their declining relative position. And what seems to be the case, even if you just, I made a list for a talk I'm giving tomorrow on um, the travesties of Trump's foreign policy just over the last month. But whatever time period you use, you get the feeling that at least he's talking about trying to overcome this declining relative power by dramatic, in, dramatic increases in U.S. military adventurism. Um, you have a uh, talk about a new round of nuclear weapons. You have this creepy announcement uh, from the Center for Disease Control about how to, um, how to prepare for a, a nuclear attack. And it reminds us old-timers, at least me, of the duck and cover, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the air raid rituals of the 1950s. 
Oh, yeah. um, the kind of theoretical arguments by, of major scholars that we're in a state of perpetual war. So you have all of these elements, both the uh, scientific and technological research to advance our military capabilities way beyond, you know, 2,000 years of history of warfare. Uh, you have the U.S. effort to expand its military presence all across the face of the globe. And you have the maintenance or enhancement of an ideology based upon fear and terrorism and American exceptionalism. All of this uh, to challenge the shift from a, uh, from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. And so part of our task, not that I have the answers, I think I know some of the questions, but part of our task is how to mobilize uh, to limit the consequences of this militarized effort to overcome U.S. declining relative power. One of the things, and then I'll shut up and you can <laughs> talk, one of the things that uh, intrigues me is uh, the dramatic increase in military spending. And that's nothing new, but the trajectory has been more or less uh, you know, direct increase in military spending since since the onset of the Korean War, uh, and um, we reach what over seven hundred billion dollars now of just the DoD part of the military spending, and the people like National Priorities Project, Cost of War, or Resisters League have interesting data about what could be done with that money. Uh, if it wasn't spent wastefully on military. And I think that means that the peace movement and the convergence of uh, the, the our revolution and um, the new Poor People's Campaign has to get involved in what we used to call back in the day movements for economic conversion. And I was giving a talk at the church across the street from our house, and I was complaining about military expenditures and somebody raised his hand and said, that's all well and good, and I totally agree with you, but people need jobs. And if we can't uh, propose uh, concretely uh, patterns of economic conversion in which people can continue to work and earn a living, then we'll never gain support for programs of reducing military spending. So that means we have to link up economic conversion, say, with the green jobs agenda, with shifting to more to, uh, to services, to rebuilding infrastructure uh, in the United States. All of these to shift the workforce away from military production to civilian production. And one person at this talk that uh, I was at said that he used to work, he was, used to work in aerospace, and he said when they produced the old B-2 bomber, there were subcontractors in 433 or 435 congressional districts. And so that's part of what you have to fight against as well, uh, to uh, figure out ways to overcome the extraordinary reliance of the American economy on military spending. Okay, uh, you know, and of course, the Republicans right now are absolutely freaking out because we are so underfunded. Our military is so right. underfunded. <laughs> and what is it? How does it compare to, you know, 
to any other military force in the in the world? I mean, the funding, the money. Well, I can't. Uh, I, I keep forgetting the comparisons. Are that we spend more than the next fifteen countries? Something like that. Or, I, it, you know, really half the world, and uh, we dwarf the Chinese even. You know, uh, and the Russians. Does, do you think that all of the kind of preparation, the kind of psychological preparation for the idea of a nuclear war, not preparation necessarily, but kind of psychological grounding or whatever, does that, that seems pretty dangerous to me because it makes people sort of accept the idea. The, yes. And nobody, I, you know, we've gone through a long period of time where it was, quote, unthinkable. Mm-hmm. You know, and it seems like suddenly it's thinkable. That's right. And, you know, I, I uh, blame myself as well as everybody else until, uh, until the surfacing of the crisis on the Korean Peninsula. I stopped thinking about the existence and spread of nuclear weapons. And, um, you know, it turns out that there's still enormous accumulation of weapons uh, there are eight nuclear powers. I don't think the United States has signed off on uh, all of the treaty to ban the spread of nuclear weapons. And Trump wants to construct a new generation of, of nuclear weapons. So, uh, And the North Koreans are so boxed in that they see nuclear weapons as their only, only protection. And they've got historical examples to justify their view, Iraq and Libya. For example, so yeah, the, the the whole system is geared towards uh, more and more escalation of uh, nuclear weapons and super sophisticated conventional weapons. Do you see that there's? Do you see anywhere right now within the? I don't know what we call. We used to something we used to call the movement, but within the sort of. Uh, the resistance uh, organizations and the, and the uh, uh, progressive, uh, you know, left. Uh, do you see more consciousness about this? Do you see anything to be hopeful about in terms of consciousness about what's happening in the world and about the military? I can't say I have much experience. My friends in committees of correspondence who have been part of United for uh, Peace and Justice uh, and U.S. Labor Against the War um, sort of suggest that the peace movement still is in disarray. Uh, I see the most consistent presentation of data and argumentation from U.S. Labor Against the War and the War Resisters League, um, but I don't think they've been in a major uh, major part of the conversation of this overall movement building that we've been talking about since the beginning of the hour. Uh, I'm really impressed with Code Pink and a variety of other groups that engage in particular projects. One of my friends in CCDS said among the most effective solidaristic transnational movements is BDS. Uh, BDS. Uh, but the, I don't see as much vitality in the anti-nuclear movement, in the anti-war movement, or in a campaign against uh, military expenditures. So when Barber articulated this or announced this new poor people's campaign and drew upon King's Riverside Church speech, it gave me hope that we will begin to make the connections between domestic and foreign. You know, and if we add racism, one other thing, and then I'll yeah, stop. I was really 
impressed by an article of now deceased, a great African-American scholar, um, Manning Marable, wrote about probably a decade ago, and it's been reprinted by ZNet, on racialization and globalization. And he introduces the phenomena that we haven't talked about yet, neoliberal globalization and the spread of U.S. financial capital on a worldwide basis. And along with this, the outsourcing of jobs uh, to manufacturing overseas. And uh, he argues that this phenomenon has uh, particularly hit poor and black communities and increased unemployment rates among African Americans. And those unemployment rates uh, lead to increased criminality and incarceration. And at the end, voter disenfranchisement so that Marable argues that there's an intimate interconnection between neoliberal globalization overseas and uh, racism at home. And so that's another way in which we have to think about interweaving the disparate elements of what concerns us all. Okay, uh, we need to take another break. I would mention one thing. We're talking with Harry Targ. Uh, that one person who I think really tried to keep up the consciousness about the need to to look at, at, at what we were doing around the world and to looking for a resurgence of the peace movement was Tom Hayden. Uh-huh. Uh, in his writings, he consistently uh, he assistantly addressed consistently addressed that problem. So uh, we need to take a break, uh, and we'll continue in just a minute. I'm Thorne Dreyer, and this is Rag Radio. When I was a child, my family would travel Down to western Kentucky, where my parents were born And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered So many times that my memories are worn And daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River, where paradise lay well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River to the abandoned old prison down by Avery Hill where the air smell like snakes and we'd shoot with our pistols. But empty pop bottles was all we would kill. And daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River where paradise lay. Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled it away. John Prine, Tracy Schultz. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as recommended, it's like by our guest it's, uh, for today. It's like a good, good, good pick, sir. And uh, who might be our guest today? It would be Harry Targ, professor of political science at Purdue University, coordinator of Purdue's Committee on Peace Studies, uh, 
a, uh, he's a national co-chair of the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism, and he, write, he has written for the RAG blog, and this is his second time on RAG Radio, and there's lots more. He's written a bunch. So, Harry Targ. Yes, you know what? Um, I just so love the music. I would have preferred a half hour of Pete, half hour John Prine. Um, you know, it, it sort of reminds me that my, my sense is that maybe even a little bit of a different uh, uh, care, uh, de- development in uh, t- the 21st century has to do with ideological struggle, consciousness raising you know, sort of exacerbated, if you will, by <clears throat> social media. And we talked about already about the war system and uh, people being uh, uh, socialized or acculturated to accept war, uh, to accept nuclear weapons. Uh, you mentioned Tom Hayden, and there was the debate about the Defense Department's official history of the Vietnam War, and more recently the debate about Ken Burns's documentary on Vietnam, and I know Hayden was active in some of that debate, and so there's a struggle over. Yeah, we did. We did two shows uh, uh, after the Ken Burns documentary. Here, we did two shows in a row, and uh, especially with uh, Vietnam anti-war Vietnam vets, and uh, we it it's, was skewed pretty widely. <laughs> uh huh. And but it seems to me that is. That has become, that's another important ideological campaign that we have to be involved in. And uh, when John Prine's uh, singing about Mecklenburg County, it reminds me about the sort of celebration of the work of J.D. Vance's um, um, Hillbilly Elegy and the president of our university, Mitch Daniels, who was a former governor of Indiana, brought J.D. Vance as a guest speaker to tell us about what working class in Appalachia was about. And so, you know, that's something that we need to uh, struggle uh, over as well. And then, of course, uh, white supremacy, which has become so normalized in public uh, discourse and a continuation of sort of a patriarchal frame on women. And so, you know, along with our sort of concrete campaigns, around specific issues, I think we have to sort of promote education even more. Uh, in CCDS, we have a committee called the Socialist Education Project, and I, from what I hear, DSA has similar enterprises at work. And so we need to educate ourselves a lot more. And I've discovered I teach U.S. foreign policy, and, you know, the sort of uh, definitions of uh, historical narratives are really political acts, and um, so we've got a lot on our plate. And I think debates about these sort of things are terribly important, and that makes you know justifies Rag Radio and Rag Blog and other blogs and so on. Uh, well, I, yes, <laughs> and we need a whole lot more, uh, and we have problems now because uh, you know with I mean Google might start cracking down on left uh, blogs and stuff, along with, you know, their attempt to, to supposedly uh, get rid of the fake news stuff. Um, it, this is such a crazy time, Harry. And, I mean, it's a time that almost is without time. <laughs> I mean, and, and what's happened with Trump, what's happened with the incredible divisions within this country, what's happened with the with 
<laughs> with the fact with the diminution of fact <laughs> as, right. as a as a uh, as a factor in in uh, in decision making uh you know with the the open as you said uh, the white supremacist uh, and and racist attitudes, uh, and I mean Trump is is maybe unique in a lot of ways, but on the other hand, he's clearly the product of what the Republican Party has been moving towards uh, for quite a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think he's a perfect tool of the Republican Party, right? Because we concentrate on all of his stupidity and foils yes. <laughs> and immoralities and possible corruptions while the Republicans are stealing from the ch- uh, cash register. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's certain, certainly true. Do you think we have a real progressive movement, electoral movement in the, in the works? What do you think is going to happen in the midterms? Do you think it makes a difference if we elect Democrats in general? Uh, of course, there's an awful lot of progressive Democrats that are right. working, you know, and, you know, DSA has like 15 elected f- officials now mm-hmm. around the country. And, and now there's all this work. Our revolution, uh, Indivisible, are all doing all of this work on the grassroots level, uh, uh, grooming candidates, getting more people to, to run. Uh, what do you think about all of that? Right. I, I see a... a an important struggle going on within the Democratic Party between the progressive wing and the centrists or the blue dogs, to use a more pejorative term. And it was reflected in the selection of the chair of the DNC. Um, It's reflected in some of these local races and and the extent to which the Democratic Party spends money in support of uh, one candidate or another. And um, I still see some real value in supporting sectors of the progressive wing, Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and a whole host of others. And for most people, if if you throw out the word politics, they think about elections. So I think we have to be there. And given the nature, the structure of the electoral arena, we live in a world of a two-party system. So I think we have to be there. Uh, But it seems to me the Democratic Party is in the midst of a struggle every bit as deep as that in the Republican Party. And the outcome of that struggle will determine whether we have a chance of pushing ahead at all and resisting more Trumpism uh, or being totally defeated. And I see a lot of the leadership in the Democratic Party shooting themselves in the foot uh, on a regular basis. Congresswoman Pelosi and uh, Schumer in the Senate and large sectors of the leadership of the party. Yes, absolutely. I've seen that, yeah. I've, especially, I've, especially Pelosi. Susie, Susie just saved my life. My, I, <laughs> I stepped on the cord to my headphones. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and so I was desperately trying to plug it back in, and Susie and you defeated the dead some... air issue. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I do agree about Pelosi. She's, I think, she's almost becoming a liability. Oh. And yeah. you, you guys probably have some of the dilemmas that we have in the state of Indiana. There are very few progressive Democrats either in the state legislature are running for national office. And we have a very vulnerable Senate candidate, Joe Donnelly, who more often than not uh, votes with the centrists. 
And we have the dilemma. Should we support him over someone who's really extreme uh, or not? And that's the enduring dilemma of the left, right? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that we have to look at sometimes in situations like that where there's no real progressive alternative is that it does make a lot of difference in certain things like civil liberties, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and funding for for poverty. I mean, although we don't do much of that anyway, but I mean, it seems it seems like in the long run that, that we have to there are times we have to to sort of hold our nose. Right, right. And the federal judgeships, the Supreme yeah, oh, Selection of Supreme yes. Court Justice, they're, these issues, they, they, the government regulations that we hardly ever hear about, there's so many dimensions of the federal government. That, Net neutrality. Yes, exactly. So um, sometimes, like you say, we have to hold our nose and then raise hell with them if they're elected. Right. Oh, absolutely. That's the thing we always have to do. (laughs) Hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do you, looking forward, what do you see? I mean, the midterms are going to be very interesting, and all of the polling and all of the sort of projections suggest that there's going to be a significant, you know, that the Democrats may take over both houses, uh, that there's certainly a very good chance of that. What we just saw with the recent elections in November uh, was that, Democrats won all over the place, including some very socialists uh, in in, in situations where they weren't given a chance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with all of the kind of grassroots work that's being done uh, by the groups that I mentioned before, it's going to be interesting. Uh, And and the Republicans are becoming more and more. They're, you know, giving in more and more to the most extreme uh, wing of the party. Uh, We may be polarized more than we've been in decades. There, right. There's got to be a question in there somewhere here. Right, right. I, <laughs> I just, uh, I, I wouldn't want our side to be too self-confident. Oh, no. And, and, and there is that danger, and um, um, it will be interesting to see if the senators cut a deal over this budget that, uh, that doesn't support DACA and so on. And I'm just really suspicious of, you know, many of the policies of the centrist and establishment uh, Democrats. But the progressive upsurge is encouraging and, of course, should be supported. Uh, so what, what, what do you think? We, just, we have about five minutes left. What do you think people should be doing? Uh, where do you think they should be putting their attention? Oh, you know, um, I mean, what group, everything. What, I, you know, I always like to end with with sort of like one telling people what they might do and maybe with some sense of of, <laughs> of hope, <laughs> because otherwise. We, you right. Know. We, you know, at CCDS, we use the common um, uh, slogans. Uh, we support left unity. So those of the traditional left group should communicate, network, and work together more and more. And then we talk about building a progressive majority. And this is where celebrating, encouraging, and working with any kind of Sanders-Barber alliance, it seems to me, would be a good place to go. One thing that I've always argued with CCDS is uh, uh, it's an organization that has most members on two coasts, 
and most of them never heard of the state of Indiana. Oh, and no. I think what we need, we have to be very cognizant of the local and regional context in which we work. If DSA is the vibrant or organization in Austin, that that's where people ought to put their energies. If it's indivisible, as it seems it may be the case in my community, maybe that's where we need to put our energies. So there's, you know, I don't think there's any formulaic solution to the problem of where do we go from here. But as I say, when we began this hour, I was really interested in the optics of the Sanders-Lash-Barber uh, coming together in conversation. And I was really interested in Barber revisiting the Poor People's Campaign 50 years later uh, and Barber's idea of fusion politics. Let's get people who work on these different issues to network and share their energies on some common goals to achieve change in the electoral arena and in the streets. So this is sort of general, almost unusable generalizations, but that's what I see is, is required, and we'll see what happens. Okay, you're a teacher. Uh, what do you see from your students? You know, it seems like we went to a period of time where people, there was a kind of apathetic uh, sense about things, and it seems like that's changed. Uh, people that I know, their kids, are much more radical than they are. Right. Uh, you know, although it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's such an incredibly difficult time because of financial realities. Mm -hmm, yeah. Uh, and so it makes it easy for people to be very radical, but not really do anything. I just came out of a uh, discussion section of my class, Introduction to Peace Studies. Uh, it was our first discussion, and a half to two-thirds of the people spoke, and they were all informed and interested um, to varying degrees, and not all of them were super enthusiastic, but most of them were. Uh, I see... Uh, over the last three or four years, and now I've been, I hate to say it, I've been 50 years at Purdue, uh, an upsurge in interest and concern about politics, uh, concern based upon people's fears of what their future is going to be like. So I'm very optimistic about young people, and these are not necessarily the people who uh, I think have been the political activists or lefties. Uh, but mainstream students who take courses to fulfill requirements and so on. But I think I, I'm not really optimistic about young people. Do you think that uh, that uh, uh, that patri the patriarchy is is quaking in its boots? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how how significant do you see? And we've just got about a minute. How significant do you see the uh, the Me Too movement and? the general women's consciousness movement at this point? Oh, I, I, I think that's significant. I, I, think, um, I think these issues of uh, gender and race uh, and changing from our generation is broadly accepted among young people. Uh, now, we read of cases in the newspaper. It's not uh, even an issue for many of them. I mean, I think you know, you're right. I think you're right. And what we're being presented in the mainstream media is extreme cases of people who don't fit this pattern. Right. But I think there's enormous changes of a positive direction. Uh, some of the identity politics makes me a little uncomfortable, but generally I think young people are much more flexible, uh, surely, than our generation was. And 
uh, have much more liberatory notions of what reality should be like. But Harry, we're still here. That's true. <laughs> so they can still learn from us, and That's we can right. learn from them. Okay, I want to thank you so much for being with us on RAG Radio. This has been fun, and we'll do it again. Okay, great. You know, thank within you the so next much. Year. Soon, soon. All right, okay. I'm available. Okay, Harry Targ. Bye-bye. <laughs> Harry Targ is available, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, I want to tell people next week on RAG Radio, next Friday, uh, I'm not going to be here. My guest host is going to be Alice Embry, and she's going to interview Austin activists organizing for Medicare for All and for a city ordinance to provide sick, uh, paid sick leave. And then the next Friday, February 2nd, Bill Minotaglio, author of The Most Dangerous Man in America, Timothy Leary, Richard Nixon, and the Hunt for the Fugitive King of LSD. So, okay. <laughs> I'm Thorne Dreyer. This is RAG Radio. Catch you next week. <laughs>